Welcome to Goiter Dialogues by the Goiter Institute, Max Müller Bhavan, New Delhi. Our monthly podcast where we talk about art, culture, education and civil society with people from all walks of life. So get ready for some interesting conversations with some very interesting personalities. Hosted by Puneet Kaur. Very good morning to you, I think, Mr. Abraham. You're in London. It must be still quite early in the morning. In India, we're approaching the evening. But London, you're still in the morning. So good morning to you. Good afternoon to everyone else uh, who has joined us from India. And I see a lot of people have written in chat that they've joined us from Bangladesh. We're especially happy to welcome our guests from Bangladesh. This is something we've, an outreach we've tried this time that has been extremely successful. And I think in the, in the future, too, we'll involve Bangladesh in more of our projects. Uh, so we're happy to have this cooperation. Um, our talk today will center more around cities, not just in, but more about Indian cities, but I'm sure that's of interest and quite similar maybe to the experiences in Bangladesh. We'd love to hear from you after the talk as to whether you think uh, it's the same in Bangladesh or is it very different? Uh, so Mr. Abraham, we'll, we'll get started. I have some very simple questions. We want our guests to get to know as to why our cities are what they are uh, through our little conversation here. Uh, when I went to school, and though that was many, many years ago, but I also noticed with my children, the same thing happened that we were taught in our civics class or in our social studies class, India is a country of villages. India lives in its villages. Yeah. Would you say that still holds true today? And uh, if yes or no, whatever you answer, what percentage of Indians are living in I would, what I would call urban spaces? Sure. <clears throat> thank, thank you, Puneet, for... Um for the introduction and, and thank you for having me once again. Um, so does India live in its villages? I mean, let's put it this way. India used to live in its villages, no question about it. Yeah. Now, in general, the problem tends to be that people come up with these lines that don't, don't then get updated, no matter what the data is actually telling you. And in, and in India, there's an additional problem, which is that uh, people like Gandhiji actually were on the record basically asking for India to be a republic of villages and so on and so forth. Now, the problem again with that is this is an idea that used to make sense in the 1920s and 1930s. The question is, does it actually make any sense today, right? Given the realities of what has happened and especially uh, given the realities of what has happened post-91 and the liberalization. So, so since it's a, it's a young audience, uh, I'll, I'll just break this down, right? So, so when you say use the word urban or you use the word rural, what do you actually mean by that, right? And the assumption that everybody has is that there is some standardized definition that is there globally. And so therefore, with the standardized global definition, you've arrived at certain numbers, which basically indicates that as per the 2011 census, only about 31% of India lives in cities. Now, the problem is that's not how it works. The definition of urban actually is completely random. And in many, in many instances, it is actually a political definition. It has nothing to do with uh, reality. So, so what that basically means is, you know, so in, in, in the case of India, what, what do you mean by the word urban, right? Um, and so if you look at the, if you look at the uh, government's definition of what constitutes urban, you need to have a population of 5,000 people. You need to have a density of 400 people per square kilometer. And, and this is where it begins to really get tricky. 75% of the male workforce has to be in non-agricultural pursuit, right? Now, this begs the question of what is agriculture? You know, what about seasonality? What about women in the labor force? There's all these kind of questions that kind of creep up. So, so, the, so the way to think about it is what would happen? So there's two ways to think about it. One is what would happen to uh, India's urban population if you applied some other definition, right? So for instance, if you took out the job criteria, the trade criteria, and simply stuck to say population, for instance, you would very quickly arrive at close to 50% urban, right? And this is all based on 2011 data. It's, it's not updated to uh, 2021. And, and so similarly, 
the the flip side of it is if you took a country like the united states and applied india's definition to it in the us would become primarily rural <laughs> and so so that is so that is one set of issue the other set the other way you can look at it is you can actually look at satellite imagery and look at built up area right so uh, so the europeans have this standard that they use uh, which we've tried and adopted uh, in india as well using satellite imagery and if you go by those standards you're looking at an urban population in excess of 60% right so the bottom line here is no matter how you splice and dice it if you use any reasonable uh, uh, definition india is somewhere close to 45% urban 50% urban if not more than that right it's somewhere so just to just to close this i mean so the the, the and and this is an important point to make which is you know i i see this very often in the business newspapers in india for instance when corporations uh, indian corporations basically say this year rural sales have been really fantastic right of whatever motorbikes or consumer durables or whatever which then begs the question of what are you using as the definition of rural right and i have actually engaged in conversations with people in corporations where their definition of rural is actually like 35000 people 30000 people now where where is their definition of rural and where is the government's definition of rural which is at 5000 people right so all of this kind of comes down to how you define the words and which is why i think it's the, it's a useful thing to think about is it even possible today given today's technologies with satellites and so on to come up with something that is reasonably standardized so that we are actually comparing apples with apples and not apples with watermelons thank you so would you would you say that that means it probably half of india today live does live in some kind of an urban space yes absolutely and and again you know another big mistakes that get, that gets made is when we use the word urban or we use the word city the the image that comes to your mind is basically a delhi and a bombay mm. no that's not what what this means there's actually people moving into urban agglomerations now these are places that you've never heard of right so for instance in in the state of andhra pradesh the fastest growing district is not something that you would have ever heard of it is it is a, it is a district called kadappa which is growing at 9% plus so these are not places that you have ever heard of and that's where the growth is actually happening now why it's happening we don't really know because we don't have the data but it's important to remember that when we say cities we don't mean bombay and delhi okay so you have said that as per government statistics when 5000 people live come together in a town or 400 people live in a square kilometer of area that is defined as urban i suppose the government were to define and say okay this particular area like kadappa is now is, is an urban settlement is no longer rural what does it mean for the people who live there now so look ultimately you've got to remember that there is really you know so okay so the elites and the rich they may have uh, reasons for why they live in a city you know it could be that i i like the food i like the museums blah 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 but if you the vast majority of people move to cities and this is a very important thing to sort of understand is that the vast majority of people move to cities because cities are where the jobs are cities are job markets so if a person basically migrates from a village to a town i don't mean a city to a small town it simply means there are more jobs and more productive jobs to be had in those towns than in the villages that they come from right so these are fundamentally job markets and by the way even those of us who uh, enjoy the luxuries of a city right i mean the museums and so on the fact of the matter is look back five generations into our own families and somewhere along the way either our grandfather or our great grandfather or our great great grandfather moved to one of these cities for exactly the same reason which is they were looking for better jobs so so in in many ways you know a lot of the attitude towards cities today it is it's almost like we are in the cities that's all fine and dandy we don't want anyone else to come in when they're actually there for the same reason that your grandfather came to uh, you know a, a mumbai or a delhi or or wherever 
Yeah, but now you come to the city, uh, suppose the government, that's what my question was, suppose the government says this particular up till now village that you were living in now has this population of 10,000. So now yeah. technically I declare it now, it is now a town, not a mega yeah. city, it's a yeah. town. Yeah. Does that have any effect on the lives of citizens? What is the difference between when it transits from say a Gram Panchayat to some kind of a municipal municipality does it brings them bring any benefits for the people okay. does it bring any any problems for them like higher taxation so if i say i'm no longer a village living a villager now i'm where i'm living is no longer a village now i'm an urban person i live in this town so is it something a better status for me what does it mean administratively also for the person yes yeah, yeah. so there? so in the in the 2011 census they identified a vast number of census towns and one of the things that was basically notified was that there need to be a statutory notice around this, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, 10 years later, none of this has actually been done. And, and at many levels, you've got to ask the question of like, you know, what is the attraction of remaining villages? And especially at the level at which you're talking about. Well, it's actually, there's, a, there's some very good reasons. Because we believe that we are a nation of villages, all the budgetary allocation tends to be massively skewed towards rural areas, mm. right? So therefore, if I remain a village, I, I actually get a much larger spend per capita than I would if I became a town. So that is one. So I have the attraction of money to start with. Number two, I if I am a town, then it's also incumbent upon me to start providing services, mm. right? And so... So not only do I lose money, but I start, suddenly st start having to have to provide what are called urban services. And it's a good position for people in power in those areas to actually keep the status quo, which is I get the money and I'm not actually eligible to provide any services. In a well-functioning system, if you had above a certain threshold of population and you were a town, you would be forced to provide these urban services, right? Now, again, just to go back to the definitional uh, point for just a second, right, uh, is we've identified clusters like, and, and it's all over the place, you will see this. So, so in, a, in, in, so in uh, Kanandevan Hills, in, in Munar, in, in um, Kerala, the population of the place is 55,000. And the place is still treated as a village, right? Which is okay, because, you know, the back end of it are the tea estates. So therefore, the private sector actually provides services. So whether it's a fire brigade or, you know, water or what have you, the private sector is actually providing those services in a place like Kanandevan Hills. So the citizens of Kanandevan Hills don't necessarily feel the fact that they're not getting uh, the services that are required. The problem is the same kind of situation. You see it being repeated in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, et cetera, et cetera, without the backstop of the private sector. So you've actually reached these high population thresholds, and yet you're not getting the services that you should be getting when you reach those population thresholds. So is that the reason for the squalor, I'd call it almost, that is prevalent quite often in these smaller Raja settlements? We, want, we can't call them urban settlements because the government says to, that they're technically not, they're still villages. So quite often, especially you talked about Uttar Pradesh or uh, many other parts of India too, not just UP. When you go, you find that what you would consider and looks like a town has actually no facilities. There are no roads, there are no sewage, yeah. there's no garbage collection. Yeah. It yeah. is because uh, there is a vested interest in keeping it exactly. rural. Exactly. Right. There's a vested interest in remaining rural. Um, so, so, they, they, so they just don't do it. Um, who has I, this vested way, interest? It just wouldn't be the, who has this vested interest? It can't be the people living there. Is it the people? No, it's the people in power. The people in power. People in power who are there have no mm. interest in actually solving this problem because they actually benefit hugely from the status quo. Um, by the way, I was just also monitoring uh, the, the chat uh, very briefly, which is uh, Jasmine has raised this point about the, the, the uh, additional criteria. Uh, Jasmine, I had actually mentioned it. Uh, this is actually a huge problem. The 75% uh, uh, male workforce in non-agricultural pursuit. Yeah, okay. Because uh, in the villages, most of them would declare themselves to be in pursuing agriculture. Correct. Because there's, again, huge benefits to being an agriculture. Being agriculture. So, 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 I mean, think about it. You know, always remember that farming is actually not as much a vocation as an identity. So this same person could be working nine months of the year, 
on a construction site in Ghaziabad. Yes. Right? Or in or in Gurgaon. Mm-hmm. But then during harvest season, they go back to their villages. But if you ask the question, what are you? The mm-hmm. answer almost certainly will be, I'm a farmer. Mm-hmm. When in fact they are actually construction workers. Workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that somehow for me is a kind of uh, contradiction because when the next election comes along, most yeah. governments and most parties would like to tell you that their agenda is, uh, what is that? Sadak, kapra, roti, sadak, and they'll talk Bishli about the urban. Yeah. Bishli, Bishli sadak pani. Thank you, yes. Bishli sadak pani. But that is something only an urban settlement gets a little faster. So isn't there a contradiction there? So not necessarily, right? I mean, so... Uh, Again, depends on what your threshold is. I mean, even a kacha road into a village is actually mm. sadak. Uh, you know, getting <laughs> getting a reasonable amount of electricity in, even you know. So if you look at the electrification program, I mean, two bulbs in a village is basically electrification. So mm. it all depends on where you're coming from. So if you're if you if you're a villager in in Kerala or a Tamil Nadu, your expectations are very high. You expect high quality education, reasonable healthcare, blah, blah, blah. But the same villager in Uttar Pradesh has very different expectations of what the government should actually be providing them. Mm. So it's a, it's also partially a low-based problem. I mean, you know, what is your expectation of what the government should be providing? you? Yeah, but when you're a migrant labor who lives maybe a better part of the year in the city and he sees the facilities yeah. that a city has and then goes back to his or her village and says, here just a bulb hai and it's supposed to be enough for electrification. They generally do ask for more. Yes. And so, in fact, um, I mean, uh, people probably have forgotten the 2014 election, but a large part of Mr. Modi's attraction at that point was actually migrant laborers reporting back on how much better things were in Gujarat. And so if you're in Uttar Pradesh, you're actually basically saying, is there any reason why Gujarat has good roads and electricity and all of those things? And Uttar Pradesh doesn't have that. Right. Mm. These are actually so. Yeah. So the the story of aspiration that is building up, especially across the hinterland of India, is actually one where, um, because of migrant patterns, because of remittances and so on, expectations across the country are actually, generally speaking, going up. Yeah. So you would would you say politics hasn't kept pace with that? Um, I think politicians. I think politics has kept pace with that because I think the phenomenon of Mr. Modi is a is a good example of how he has tapped into aspiration more successfully than any other uh, politician there is. I mean, because you see the 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 old rhetoric was, uh, you know, the, the the whole business of garibi hatao kind of rhetoric. Mm. Today there is a counter narrative which is it's no longer about garibi. It's a, it's actually about getting a better life for yourself. Right. It's you know, you don't have to worry about Garibi at this point. So I think I think I think politics, I, I'll tell you what politics has not caught up with. Politics is not caught up with the fact that India is today either primarily, I mean, is a majority urban place or is heading very quickly in that direction. It's one of those two. And so therefore, there is enough room for a urban centric party to I- emerge. That Mm -hmm. takes into account urban concerns. So the only examples of that that we've seen so far in any kind of meaningful fashion is AAP in Delhi and Shiv Sena in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that you will see a lot more of this as people begin to realize that there's a big share of the population whose needs and aspirations are not being met by the existing political combinations that are out there. Uh, when I listen to you, you, we know as citizens that in our government, coming down from the central government at least, yeah. there is something called the Ministry of Urban Development, there's something called the Ministry of Rural Development. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the, min- the Ministry of Rural Development has much larger outlays, has a much yes. larger budget. So yes. would you say that when looking into the future somewhere, there is a need to merge the two or at least reallocate budgets? Centrally, and then maybe that trickles down to the lower levels. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Puneet, you've you've uh, hit on a, a very very important question. Now, I have stuck my head out and openly said that there should just be one Ministry of Economic Development. Yeah. And this distinction of rural versus urban, in my mind, is a huge mistake, because I mean, can anyone explain to me exactly where NCR stops? I mean, I don't know where NCR stops, right? 
I mean, do you know where Mumbai stops? I don't know where Mumbai stops. So this entire sort of distinction between rural and urban in that sense is actually a big mistake. When in fact, it's actually, you know, urban's expanding outward and rural's kind of merging with urban, so to speak, right? So, so I think that honestly, what you need is a ministry of uh, economic development. So then you don't get into, and, and, and then what needs to be resolved is the administrative issue, right? Which is yeah. at a certain population, what is the administrative system that you need versus at a certain other population, what is the administrative system that you need? Unlike what is happening today, where there is potential for a gross misallocation of funds, um, there is also no incentive to reform, right? I mean, why would, why on earth would the Ministry of Rural Development actually want to merge with the Ministry of Urban Development, right? There's no reason to. And, and also keep in mind the fact that the Ministry of Urban Development has no powers whatsoever, because urban is actually a state subject. Yes, so in effect, the Ministry of Urban Development is reduced to basically governing Delhi at some level, and then it has large budgets. So therefore, it can basically fund metro systems and, and so on and so forth. So I would strongly make the argument that we need to start thinking in terms of metropolitan governance rather than just city level governance, because these are actually going to become large metropolitan regions. So for instance, if you look at NCR, NCR is, is a monstrous uh, area, right? I mean, and it's going to keep growing. So uh, similarly, you know, if, if you look at if you look at Mumbai Pune, it is very clear that these two metropolitan regions are actually merging with each other, right? So it is better to actually have large metropolitan region governance than to basically say there is a city government of X and there's a city government of Y and a city government of X. And by the way, none of them have any power to start with. Mm -hmm. When you say they have no power to start with, yeah, the cities themselves yeah. don't have power to start with. And I'm not yeah. just talking about this political game that is there in Delhi where the AAP government says we need to be a state. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very specific example. You yeah. could take the examples of Mumbai or Chennai or whatever. Citizens yeah. want one thing, the government delivers another. Yeah. Uh, especially when you look at the municipal level where we elect municipalities, we elect our cooperators. But do they have any part those I were to approach my cooperator or whoever is responsible for my particular area and say, I would like this. Does he or she have any power to give what citizens want? Yeah. So, so you know, a, a useful place to start, and especially because this is a uh, younger audience, is that what do we call the government in Delhi? We call it the central government. The newspapers are full of language like the central government, the center state relations, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you actually bother reading the constitution of India, the word center does not occur there even once. The constitution of India refers to the union. It is the union government. It's the union in Delhi and so on. And, so on. and what is this union that we're talking about? We're talking about a union of states right? It is fundamentally a federal system. And it was never meant to be what it is today, where all this power gets aggregated in Delhi, and then Delhi does favors downwards, right? So at its core, constitutionally, India is a federal system. And why is it a federal system? Because it's a country with way too much diversity to be governed from just one place, right? I mean, what would Delhiites think of being governed from Chennai? Right? I don't think anyone in Delhi would appreciate that. Similarly, nobody in Chennai appreciates being governed from Delhi. Right? It's a, it's a way. And the, the founding fathers of the country had the wisdom to create a system that actually accommodated for that. So therefore, you actually need to have a federal system functioning uh, to take into account the diversity of the country. Now, the problem with decentralization, and, and you know, you've already had the 74th Amendment, which actually asks for the decentralization to urban local bodies. The one truth that you realize about decentralization is everybody loves decentralization, but up to themselves. Yeah. Right? They don't want any decentralization beyond them. So today, actually, in many ways, the prevention of power going down to the urban local bodies is not out of Delhi. It's actually the chief ministers that are standing in the way, right? Because if you think about it for a second, let's assume for a second that 
Mumbai had an elected mayor with the same kind of powers as a, a Sadiq Khan in, uh, in, in, in um, uh, London. London or, or the New York mayors and so on. The day that happened, the chief minister of Maharashtra would basically become a cipher. Right? Because the mayor of, just like the mayor of New York City, overwhelms the governor of, of, uh, of New York. The, a similar kind of situation would emerge. So why would the chief minister of Maharashtra actually want to give away power to an elected mayor in a city like Mumbai? But this is the central issue, which is you need to find some way to solve for this problem, which is decentralize, have real power that is uh, resting in the hands of mayors and elected officials. Because right now, what happens is all of the power is concentrated in the hands of unelected bureaucrats, right? Who are typically the municipal commissioners and so on and so forth. So when people demand accountability, so you have this bizarre situation where the accountability sits with these elected but powerless officials. Yeah. But the power <clears throat> sits with unelected bureau bu bureaucrats. So if you go into a slum area, for instance, and you say, let's say that you have a major problem within a slum, a huge water breakdown or what have you, you go to your counselors or your ward level folks is who you go to because they are the ones who are proximate to you and the ones who are accountable to you. The problem is they don't have actually got the power to solve the problem because the power sits with an unelected bureaucracy. So unless we solve for this problem, the service levels at the urban uh, local body level will continue to remain abysmal. Uh, just to sort of as a side little diversion, you said uh, Delhi uh, governs, Delhi does, actually the Delhiites feel even we don't govern Delhi. We are, we are governed by the central government. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, so basically we elect a corporator who, is, who has to come back after five years to ask us for our votes again. But in the mean, these five years, he or she has absolutely no power to give us uh, anything we ask for. He or she is a supplicant to a bureaucrat uh, who then has to agree to everything and whose, whose agenda might be totally different and uh, so has really no powers. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to move away from these administrative things of rural and urban and urban governance and all. Let's uh, go into a slightly different thing. Our cities generally, as we said, they just expand horizontally. As we said, you don't, we don't know where NCR finishes. We don't know where Mumbai finishes. And yeah. then sometimes it's like uh, when I went to Hong Kong, I was shocked by kind of how high Hong Kong was. What yeah. prevents us from going growing vertically rather than uh, horizontally, is it a better thing to yeah. grow horizontally, or is it this horizontal expansion is the right way to go? Yeah. So, so I think uh, uh, um, uh, Puneet, the way to think about it is, let's think about all the cities that have gone vertical, right? So you bring up Hong Kong, Singapore, Manhattan, obviously is the is the best example of it. Chicago, um, Shanghai, right? I mean, these are the cities that that you can think of. Uh, Mumbai is going in the same direction. Now, what is common to all of these cities? What is common to all of these cities is that the real estate that it sits on is prohibitively expensive, right? So while going vertical is a good idea and increases density and therefore makes it easier to provide services and so on and so forth, also remember that going vertical is very expensive. Right. So the logic of this is basically, if you speak to anybody in the construction real estate business, they'll tell you that, like, you know, you, you, if you look at the cost curve, the minute you cross like the fourth or fifth floor of a building, the cost curve becomes a hockey stick. It is literally exponential. It just goes straight up. Right. So the only reason to build vertical is if the underlying land is prohibitively expensive. Right. So now, it is also true that there are regulatory constraints and so on and so forth. So you've got FSI caps, which is floor area ratio caps and so on and so forth. So again, just to give you a sense of uh, what we're talking about, the, the, you brought up Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong's. So again, uh, for, the, for the sake of people who don't know what floor area ratio is, floor area ratio is basically the amount you can build on a given plot of land. So if you've got a floor area ratio of one, 
what that basically mean is if you've got a area if you've got developable land of 100 square meters you can basically build one floor there of 100 square square uh, meters or two floors of 50 square meters and so on and so forth or if you have a floor far of 2 it basically means you can build 200 square meters on a 100 square meter plot of land and and so on and so forth right so that's how far works so now the far in bombay right now which is india's most expensive real estate um in in the in the island city current far is 1.33 they're planning to increase it to closer to 3 and 4 and so on singapore's central business district the far is 25 it's five right? times yeah. more than five times exactly hong kong hong kong is close to 20 the far new york city manhattan is between 15 and 20 depending on where you're building okay so that is also a constraint there's a supply side constraint but fundamentally you've got to have a reason to build up so what so you know there is actually a city in india where there are no far regulations i mean there, there are no fsi caps whatsoever right and that is believe it or not the city of hyderabad so except yeah. for banjara hills and jubilee hills which are built on hill sides mm-hmm. and so therefore are sensitive the rest of hyderabad actually has no fsi caps there is no regulatory constraint on building up but if you look at hyderabad there are no tall buildings mm-hmm. right it's very few tall buildings that exist in in hyderabad again pointing to what i said earlier which is unless the underlying land becomes really expensive you don't actually have the incentive to go vertical so what you typically find is cities always expand horizontally first vertically next even new york city first expanded horizontally and then when the population keeps increasing and the pressure on the land keeps increasing the land becomes expensive enough that now it begins to make sense for you to go vertical so i think the the one city that has well and truly reached that point is mumbai so mumbai needs to dramatically reform its supply side uh, issues here so that it can actually go vertical i i suspect that parts of ncr are in the same place so you know whether it's gurgaon or noida you know these places are all basically experimented with going vertical the problem is the city of delhi has too many restrictions supply side restrictions it will never grow tall right unless there is just enormous urban reform in the city of delhi now i don't see that happening so until that happens i think delhi in at its core will basically remain flat and its periphery will basically go up which is of course any city planner will tell you that it's the exact opposite that you actually need you want the core to be dense and you basically space out the periphery right most people are actually making a decision around space available to you so that's the real thing that you're doing which is basically saying look today i'm at x threshold of income i need more space for myself where can i get that more space for myself now so, some people may be wealthy enough to live in the high rise towers the others for the same amount of space will have to move to the periphery yeah but uh, whenever we hear in delhi we hear that very often when people say no no we need more high rise buildings in delhi and some people say no 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 if you have high rise buildings in the traffic around we get even more chaotic the infrastructure will not keep pace because if in the same area of land if there were 100 people i'm just taking a random figure uh, 100 people are living and you make so many floors and now there are 1000 people living there the infrastructure just will not keep pace so it will become more chaotic more squalid and you always hear arguments like that so is yeah. there a what would you say to that yeah i mean look it's a circular argument right i mean mm. it's basically the fact that you can't provide the infrastructure mm. so therefore then you make the argument that cities should not grow tall mm. and so on and so forth i mean i would constantly look at examples from around the world where you've got high density cities and i can tell you that there is basically no shortage of infrastructure in any of these places they're not any better or any worse than a city that is low rise right what density also does for you uh, is basically because productivity goes up dramatically because of density and agglomeration effects so the economist ed glazer he has this you know almost astounding statistic which is there's this 20 block radius in manhattan so it's between 40th street and 59th street in that 20 block radius alone just 20 city blocks this 600000 jobs 
with an average pay of $120,000. Average pay. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what cities do for you. It increases your productivity so dramatically. Right? And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that cities do that, move back to a village and see what happens <laughs> to your productivity. Yeah. Right? So, so I think I think this particular argument is completely bogus in in so also remember that you know one of the things that people constantly mistake is they mistake density of people with density of cities. Okay. So let's just run this exper- thought experiment in our head where we double the flow rate ratio available in Mumbai. Okay. So we go from say 1.3 to 2.6. All right. Now the fear that people have is oh my God, you're going to get massacred by, you know, influx of people, blah, blah, blah. People are forgetting that for that to happen, the population of Mumbai has to go from 20 million to 40 million. That is not happening. That is not happening, right? So if you double the FSI of Mumbai, what you're effectively doing is you are providing more space to people. That's what you're actually doing. And, and also remember the, the, the other problem with these FSI restrictions is that when you have it just leads to massive misuse of land, right? Mm. So let me give you a couple of examples in Mumbai. So by the way, Mumbai is not there is enough 90-storied, 100 storied buildings coming up in Mumbai. So you've got to ask with an FAR this low, right? With 1.3 to 2, give or take FAR, how are you building these 90-storied and 100 storied buildings? Well, I'll tell you how. You are basically taking 17 acres of land, privatizing it, right? Because this is actually land that is from the public domain. It's been privatized. And now you're going to build two buildings there. Okay. Mm. Right? So what's going to happen is the people who live in those two buildings are going to have access to enormous swimming pools. You know, I've even seen buildings with football stadiums inside you know, tennis courts, all of those things. But the minute you step outside, you're stepping out into a street which cannot hold two cars at the same time. Mm. But that is literally because you have taken land from the public domain and you've privatized it. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's another chain of thought now I'm going to play the argument from the other side which says if you have denser cities and you have more number of people living per square meter, per square kilometer, whatever, yeah. Yeah. actually... It's easier to build infrastructure because a smaller area of land on which you have to build it. Yeah. Like if you give a good metro connection between two places, why would yeah. you take out your car? Like we've yeah. seen that happen in Delhi, where more and more of our citizens have shifted to the metro and say, I don't take my car out now. It's so much more convenient to just take the metro. And it is proving to be a good alternative. So if good public transport is provided, if all other benefits are given, then actually if you provide denser cities, which grow vertically, you, you, it's easier for the state to provide infrastructure. Would you say that is also true? Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, it's not just it's not just easier. It's also cheaper. Yeah. Right? I mean, just again, you know, let's just do again another thought experiment, right? What does it cost to basically generate one megawatt of power? Okay. One megawatt of electricity, the rule of thumb is it costs you a million dollars to generate one megawatt of power. You want to basically distribute that cost, $1 million to produce a megawatt of power. Is it better to distribute that amongst 100 people or 100,000 people? Which, where does the economics work out better? Yeah. Yeah. And instead, we are basically trying to say, no, we want to distribute it amongst 100 people. Mm-hmm. Well, that will never work because it will become too expensive. And the people who need that power are nowhere in the income criteria where they can actually afford that power. So it always, it's not just easier, but far less expensive to actually provide it when there's an agglomeration of people. Yeah, so we should then say that our cities should rise vertically rather than horizontally, whether now it's in the central business district, that doesn't happen in India, except maybe Mumbai, I think. Otherwise, Delhi, as you said, it's its core is actually pastoral almost in parts. And then you sort of move out and then you see these high rises. But again, it's rent-seeking, right? I mean, it's basically people who live in the core of Delhi. They love their gardens and all of them. 
<laughs> I'd love to live there if I could. <laughs> Who won't? It's there, lovely. It's absolutely lovely there. Yeah. Okay, now to get away from that thing of FSI and high rise and vertical, one particular concept which has been brandished about a lot since uh, this government has come to power, but even before that, I thought I'd heard of it, is this concept of a smart city. What that it is eludes me. How do I know that a city is smart? Yeah. <laughs> what tells me that I live in a smart city? I just do not get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you know, I mean, I, I think the real issue here is uh, people confuse digitization and smart. Okay. That that's what lying. That's what lies at the heart of this. So. So the assumption, therefore, is that if you digitize a whole bunch of things, then by definition, you become smart. Now, to people who go down this particular path, I mean, my question to them is, how did Singapore get to be a wealthy city and a well-functioning city before the internet? Yeah. Right? So yeah. please explain to me what digitization has to do mm. with how Singapore got wealthy in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Right? Whereas in India, the, uh, uh, the entire assumption seems to be if we just put a bunch of sensors here and there and provide Wi-Fi on buses, we will somehow uh, uh, arrive at a much better functioning city. It's almost like, you know, I mean, so I, I don't know if people remember cities in Colombia in the 90s, you know, Medellin, Cali, all of these, they were basically run by drug cartels, right? Now, today, Medellin, all of these places have actually become fairly good and livable places uh, in that sense. And do we honestly believe that these places have basically become better places to live in because of digitization or because they've actually taken care of their law and order problem? Right. So, so I think in general, what you see is because the problems of governance, because the problems underlying structural problems in the economy are so hard to deal with, right? I mean, these are not easy problems to deal with. Because they're so hard to deal with, people want to find shortcuts. And one of the most interesting shortcuts that has come about in the last 10 years, this idea of let's digitize everything. And by digitization, we call it smart. And unfortunately, big companies like the likes of Cisco and IBM and so on, who actually have a lot of hardware to sell, basically accentuate this idea that somehow if you place all of this stuff, your life is going to get much better. Now, it may be possible that your life basically gets a little bit better. But look, at the end of the day, no amount of Wi-Fi and buses is going to help you if you don't have a bus fleet to start with. Yeah. Right? I mean... You have to or roads to fly them on, or roads, or, or to, roads to go or for them to go on. Right. So, yeah. so unfortunately, we need to solve the basic problems, and those basic problems, no question, are very hard. I'm not. I'm not denying that. But unless, but any city that has got to a reasonable level of development and wealth and so on are actually cities that have addressed some of these issues. So a smart city is not, is not really something that just can be visually seen or felt. It's just that there is more digitization behind right. whatever that, is happening. That's the way, yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I've been even more blunt than this. I have written an op-ed back in 2016 where I my closing line for the op-ed was, the first step to being a smart city is to be a less dumb city. <laughs> But a smart city, the whole concept of a smart city is also a very expensive concept, then, isn't yeah, it? It is also it is also extremely expensive. Yes. Look, uh, again, um, you know, again, my, my my you can spend money if if you're going to get me results by digitization, I have no issues with that. But find me anyone who's basically willing to say my life in X city has gotten better because it's a smart city. Yeah, it simply hasn't. No, 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 no. Um, my last question, and I think there are a lot of questions after that in the chat, which we can take on. But my last questions would be: uh, What are the three reforms? I'm not asking for too many. Just three reforms you would like to see in urban governance. Yeah. So, look, I mean, you know, there's a ton that needs to be done. But since you've 
said three. Okay, we'll make it four or uh, five. It's okay, but three is what yeah, I thought no, no, of, sure. not to put too much pressure on you. No, and yeah. some of these we've we've also kind of touched on in the yeah. conversation. So I, I think first and foremost would be this understanding fundamentally at the policymaking level and at the citizenry level that cities are job markets. The reason people come to cities is because that's where the jobs are, right? So therefore, there needs to fundamentally be an economic development mandate that is associated with cities. So if you look at the way, for instance, the Chinese government has basically dealt with its cities, these cities are basically being driven by an economic development mandate. Yeah? So I think that is critical, that it's about jobs, it's about having more economic development, and it's about prosperity and improving the lives of people in the cities. Now, equally as part of that, what I would also say is because so much of this urban conversation in India is dominated by the planning and architecture community, I would say that you need to have a compulsory course in economics in the planning and architecture schools because they need to understand that this is not just about buildings. It's about why people come to cities, why people choose to live together, and they need to fundamentally understand that. So that would be one. This, now, directly connected with the jobs question is, so if there's, you know, people always ask me, you know, what is it that you would basically uh, uh, suggest in terms of what are the most important things for a government to address in a city? So therefore, it would be if jobs are the key drivers why people come to cities, then economic development is one. The second is transportation, right? So that you can get from where you live to where you work in a reasonable amount of time. And when I say that, I also am including your feet. If you choose to walk to work, that yeah. should be possible. And if you want to do that, then sidewalks become important. How you manage traffic becomes important, et cetera, et cetera. But transport, broadly speaking. And the third is housing that is affordable to the people looking for housing. And here, a critical piece of this would be rental housing, right? Uh, because anybody on this chat who moves to a new city, none of you are in a position to actually buy a house you should be in a position to rent a house. And so you need a much better rental housing stock that's available, right? So rental housing should be a key priority. So all of this is to basically say, so now on the transport piece alone, right? And, and I think this is one of the biggest changes that you see in London over the last 20 years is by integrating all transport into a single authority, i.e. the transport for London, there has been literally a step change in transport in London. It is super easy to get into in and out of London, to travel around London, all of that, way better than any other city that I know of, right? So, so, so if you look at a city like Mumbai, for instance, just to explain how the breakup happens, is you've got the local trains that are under the mandate of the union government, You've got the bus fleet, which is run by the state government. And then you've got all, all the intermediate transport stuff, which is run by the local government. Now you want to integrate all of these services. It's good luck. It's not going to happen because they're reporting to completely different organizations and their incentives are completely different, blah, blah, blah. So this is a huge reform. If you can actually integrate these into a transport for Mumbai or a transport for Chennai, right? Bring it all under one umbrella and where they can actually work together. And then the third reform, um, I, you know, there's a lot that you can say about housing and all of that, but the, the third thing is, again, we've touched on this, is I think it's important to decentralize. I think it's important to have directly elected mayors uh, with real powers. Look, I think, especially in the world that we live in today, proximity and accountability is super important. And elected mayors are critical to basically having that. But keep in mind that that alone won't do because you need adequate capacity. Because today, capacity in the, even if I had an elected mayor tomorrow, nothing would work because there is no capacity in any of these cities. So you actually need a concentrated effort at increasing capacity. And then it's kind of what I referred to in the, in the transport conversation, which is that you need streamlining of the agencies so that all bodies actually report into this one point of uh, contact within the government and all power flows from that. I think these would be, I mean, again, as I said, you know, there are many, many reforms one can suggest, but at some level, creating a transport for Mumbai or a transport for Chennai, these are doable. You know, they're not, they're not 
overwhelmingly hard, so to speak. But uh, if I just may ask one last question, I said last was my last question. Would that not need devolution of powers, which is going to be difficult? Yeah. So I mean, look. So look, at some level, we've done the hard work, which is there is a constitutional requirement for you to actually yeah. uh, devolve power, right? Yeah. It is the political will that is missing. So yeah. I would argue that this is actually easier to do in places that do not have a city like Mumbai or a city like Delhi within it, right? So I would say that a state like Odisha, right, or a state like Andhra Pradesh should take the first step because it's much easier to have a properly elected, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mayor of a Vijayawada or a Vishakapatanam than it is to have an elected mayor in Mumbai because the political, you know, it's it's just too difficult. So rather than basically insisting that Mumbai be the driver of the change or Bangalore be the driver of the change, let's look at smaller cities where we can actually pull this off. So basically, I think it was the 74th Amendment, if I'm not mistaken, yes. did call yes. for devolution of powers, which has been also accepted. It's been passed, but it has yes. not been yes. implemented. It has not been implemented. Implemented anywhere. And I think, as you said, in the larger cities, there is an interest, a vested interest in keeping safe in the state of Maharashtra, Mumbai, finances the rest of the state, practically. Yeah. Yeah. So they're yeah. not going to do, sort of do away with it, but smaller cities can do so. Right. Do. I mean, also keep in mind the political incentives of a Maharashtra, right? I mean, basically... Yeah. Something like 70%, 80% of my economy is just basically Mumbai, Pune. Mumbai. Yeah. But only 20% of my votes come from, from these from areas. <laughs> yeah, so they're not going to do so. Perhaps as a little exercise I'd like to do, we've been having a pretty active chat here, but still, considering we talked about this so often, I want to ask everyone who's listening in, can they write in chat uh, the name of the mayor of their city? Yeah. Stay. Could you just write I, the name? I, I always run this experiment. <laughs> it is astounding how nobody knows the mayors of this. I, you know, who the mayor of London is maybe, may even know who the mayor of New York is. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to see if any of you know who the mayor of Delhi or Mumbai or Chennai, wherever you might be, all of you, we are people from across the country here, I think, or Pune or anywhere. If you can write in the chat, I know the name of this is the name of my mayor. Well, somebody's written Madhu Azad from Rogram. Is she the mayor of Purgram? I've never heard of a Mukesh Suryan. Their names I've never heard of. Where is Mr. Suryan the mayor of? Who's the mayor of Delhi? Can somebody write that there? Is it Madhu Azad? I wouldn't even know. Okay, if somebody wrote it, I wouldn't even know it was the correct answer. So I think <laughs> basically yeah. we just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, 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 you know, I can tell you that Kishori Pendekar is the mayor of Mumbai. But that is because, you know, I mean... We yeah, are, actually, they're we right. work in the space, so we have no option. Yeah, but, but here it's quite people, interesting. <laughs> That's Delhi even does not have one city. We have a South Delhi Municipal Corporation and North Delhi. So there are different mayors for different parts of it and nobody right. knows right. anybody. That is the thing. As right. the poor, poor people, they have no powers at all. It's just the title they have. It's just the title they have. Okay, I'm going to try and read out some of the questions that are there in the chat. Uh Somebody has written, asked many people who moved to the city area, that's Sweetie, I think she's from Bangladesh, has written, asked many people who moved to the city area, and most of them told me that they moved because of health care. So my question is, why do we not establish good hospitals or health care in the countryside? So, um, so uh, Sweetie, it's the exact same reason that I mentioned to you about electricity. What does it cost to build a high-quality hospital or a reasonable-quality hospital? It is very expensive. And so if the catchment area for that hospital is very small, you have to be very rich to be able to afford those, that kind of healthcare. So it, it, it boils down to an economic question. What is the unit cost of delivering healthcare? And the unit cost for delivering healthcare in a rural area is very, very high, which is why rural areas are really meant for the ultra rich, not the ultra poor. poor. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's one more question. They say, sir, the haphazard way the cities are made, like Delhi, will it still be safe to have high-rise buildings? Or will the design not become more chaotic and will be unsafe to live in high-rises? Yeah, I mean, it's a valid concern. It's a, it yeah. is a valid concern. But look, that 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 same uh, you know question can be asked about the building that you live in currently. 
right? That could collapse as well. All kinds of horrible things happen all the time. You know, buildings catch fire, uh, all kinds of things like that happen. So if you take that approach, you will not actually live anywhere. Instead, focus on the problem. What is the problem here? The problem is we lack enforcement capability. We have the standards, but we don't enforce it, right? And instead of addressing the enforcement problem, what we typically do in India is we keep increasing the legislation. Mm. So we basically say we need more laws, we need more laws, we need more laws. My question to these people is, if you can't enforce the first layer of laws, how is having a second layer of laws going to help you? It's not going to help you. So you have to focus on building the enforcement capability. There is no other way to deal with this issue. Mm. There's another very interesting question. He's, there's this gentleman, Joydeep Das. He says, yeah. that can we relate lack of large urban agglomerations yeah. in eastern and northern East, northeastern India to the relatively low economic growth of these areas? Yeah. So it's not just, it, it's not just eastern. I think it's, it's all across the Gangetic Plain. If you look at the Gangetic Plain, and I basically tell you, tell me what the big cities are where there is real economic growth. Right? You're, you're hard-pressed to show me anything. So you've got... You know, you can point me to Kanpur, you can point me to Lucknow, maybe one other city, and that's it, right? The catchment area of these places is close to four, five hundred million people. Four, five hundred million people, depending on two cities and three cities, is absurd, which is why you're seeing what you're seeing, which is either you're caught in a completely low level development trap in those areas, or you're just migrating in huge numbers. Right. So every cab driver in, in Mumbai is basically from UP yeah. or Bihar. Right. So that's what you'll eventually end up at. So, yes, absolutely. I think, look, large agglomerations is directly tied to economic development. And so, therefore, we need to lose our fear of these places and welcome them. If you want to prosper, if you want to get rich, if you want to get wealthy, there is no other way that is known to mankind that we know how to address this issue. If you don't believe me, Look at the OECD, right? Look at those 34 countries and look at every single one of those countries. Look at what the urban share of the population is. In every one of them, it'll be more than 70%. Okay, there's one more question, which is in the regular chat. This is, is it worthwhile to reserve land for affordable housing? Like land is reserved for roads, schools, and open spaces. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, Yes, you could reserve land, but look, I think the problem with affordable housing is actually on the supply side. So let, let me explain. What I mean is unless you solve for that supply side crisis, you will not be able to deal with it even if you reserve land. So, um, so let me give you an example today, right? I mean, so what is capital cost in India today? Capital cost in India today is whatever, between 13 and 17% thereabouts is what is going to cost you to borrow money. Your approvals process in a state like Karnataka, I'm just taking a random state, is between 18 and 24 months. If your capital cost is 13 to 17% and approvals take 18 months, there is no way you're building affordable housing. The only housing you can build is houses for millionaires. There you cannot build anything else. So those are supply side, fundamental supply side constraints. Land availability is a huge part of it. Yeah. But there are many other constraints that need to be solved alongside because otherwise you will only address like literally one tenth of the problem. There's one more question that's I think this thing about the mayor of a city seems to have caught everyone's imagination. <laughs> so somebody's written, sir, I didn't really understand the comparison between the mayors of London and New York and India was isn't the whole system different? So how is this comparison being drawn? Sir, please shed some light on that. I, I guess I'll have to ask them to explain what they mean by whole system is different because US is a democracy, the UK is a democracy, India is a democracy. So I, I'm not sure what you mean by the whole system is different. So why is it okay for Londoners to be able to manage their own affairs or New Yorkers to be able to manage their own affairs, but not okay for a Mumbai to manage their own affairs? How? What is the systemic difference here? Citizens would like to govern and would like to be governed by people who are accountable to them. I don't want to be governed by somebody who's completely unaccountable to me. So I'm not sure what this, this business of different system is. 
I mean, yes, today the, the actual administrative mechanism is different. It's a different system, but that is because of actions that were taken by those cities. I think I'll have to go back to see if there are any more questions. There's a question, I think that's a little specific, but still I'll read it because it's there. It says, why is the healthcare system in Rajasthan very low? I think you've indirectly answered that question all yeah, day. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's, a very, it's not that the healthcare system in Rajasthan is very low. It's that if you go to Jaipur, you will get very good healthcare. Mm-hmm. If you go to Udaipur, you will get very good healthcare. It's the same story. Yeah. yeah. You get the agglomerations and you'll get good healthcare. If you yeah, go yeah. to sparsely populated areas, the economics simply won't work for you. Work for you. Yeah. 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 And um, this is why, uh, Puneet, I keep going back to what I said in my reform suggestion, right? Is so few people seem to understand the economics of cities. Mm-hmm. Because again, this conversation is so dominated by planners and architects. It is extremely important to understand. I'm not saying that is not important, but it's equally important to understand the economics of cities. It's interesting you say so. The other day we had four or five leading architects uh, in a discussion and they said that they were actually on the sidelines. Nobody questions them, asks them anything. And cities are planned without anybody ever consulting them because they have so many ideas as to how cities could be better. But they find that their ideas are always sidelined and there are other lobbies which are so much more stronger. No, so they are talking as architects, right? But yeah. if you look at if you look at a planning body, a planning body, okay, yeah. right? Mm. Look at a planning body and ask what is their background. Mm. Every single one of them will either have a planning or an architecture background, mm. which has nothing to do with why people live in cities. Yeah, okay, from that way, yeah, yeah. So yeah. all I'm saying is, at a minimum, these bodies should have at least twenty percent should be people with a training in economics who understand public policy, who understand the trade-offs that are involved, right? Because public policy is all about trade-offs. There is no perfect world. So if you said earlier that in schools of architecture, they should also teach economics. Oh, so sure, they should also sure. be teaching public policy, isn't it? That's I mean, so it's more about, you know, people need to understand incentives. People need to understand trade-offs. Why do people behave in a certain way? It makes complete sense that Mumbai needs to have a mayor. But if Mumbai doesn't have a mayor, right? You have to understand how incentives work. There is no point, you know, fighting or raging against the machine without understanding what the incentives are. Because if you don't understand the incentives, you're never going to solve the problem. Okay. (laughs) I think uh, there are no more questions, or at least they're very similar questions which you've already answered. I don't want to trouble you with those. I think it's been very enlightening. Thank you so much for your time. I know you've been very busy shifting home and still you found time for us today. No worries worries at all. uh, Yeah, and I hope that... Always happy to make the case for better planning, better urban yeah, and all of that. That's as I said, we want to raise awareness about the cities we live in. We are going to be living, more and more of us in India are going to be living in cities the way it looks. And, uh, we and, and, be. and, and honestly, I applaud you for doing this. You know, my life is not... I used to be a professor in a past life, but you know, today I don't interact with students. I don't do any of that. I interact with policymakers. Uh, I'm glad you're bringing in the new generation, students, etc., into the conversation. It is extremely important that they understand that. Yeah, thank because you. That's the whole idea. Live. This is where you're going to create your life. Exactly, exactly. That's the whole idea of this project. In fact, that we didn't. We said it's we are urban. All of us. We've lived. We've grown up in these urban spaces, and somehow we don't seem to be able to have any say in what is going on around us. And I think that's really sad. And people are very interested. I think they were very involved in a very aware citizenry on the whole. You just have to go to one of these housing condos to see how aware and how active people are to improve their own uh, surroundings. Uh, Their passions run high if two trees have to be planted somewhere or if something has to be done better. I always find that an interesting comparison, like in the condo, in the condo, there is a RWA and how involved people living over there are in changing things there. So I think yeah. if they were given a chance to change things outside the walls of their condo, they would do that too. They'd yeah, come because, out. I mean, yeah. You know, it's so yes. I mean, the, the RWA is your direct, immediate prop set of problems are addressed by the RWA. Mm. But the road that you live on yeah. also has potholes. Yeah. And you would like someone to address it without pain, right? You should be able to have someone address it. 
Yeah. So if people were given a chance, if they had, if we had a more accountable local government, people would sort of involve themselves a little more themselves too. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, not for, it's not for want of people, but people. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the system. It's the system which yeah. needs yeah. a little bit of looking at. Find ways to let people participate. And as I said, it's really surprising that the constitutional framework for that or the administrative framework for that is there on paper. It's, it's, not it's that, already there. Yes, it's already exactly. there on paper. It's not that our vocal parliament may law pass karana or something. We don't have that. Exactly. It's just that it's there, but it's not there. <laughs> and incentive. that's what we have to Again, you know, what is your incentive to actually make this happen? Yeah, you know, okay. if, if we had a if we had more time, I could break it down. You know, there's literally clauses that have been inserted into the law. to prevent it from actually happening okay i think i'll 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 hold you on that maybe we'll come back to you one day to see we'll have a discussion on that <laughs> thank oh, you sure, very sure. much and thank you once again mr abraham it was a pleasure having you with us thank you thank you for listening we hope you had an enjoyable experience catch you in the next episode